was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. I am so happy to present to you today part two of my interview with the amazing Broadway legend Karen Morrow. Well, I'd love to pick back up by asking you about A Joyful Noise, and specifically about Michael Bennett, because it was, of course, his first show. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 I was crazy about him. As a matter of fact, we kind of dated a little bit, if you want to call it that. I mean, we went out to dinner after all of that, and he said to me, now that he's gone, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that, because it turned out to be true, uh, as, as we were leaving, he said, he said, the thing that, that scares me the most, he said, is that by the time I'm 29, I'll be as famous as Jerome Robbins became. He said, and then what do I do? Oh. I thought, okay. I thought that was kind of a, because that was in, well, that was, what were the years we did that in the 60s? And I thought, well, okay. I mean, he hadn't done Chorus Line or anything yet. He hadn't become famous. This was his first show. But he really knew he was going to be something. And then he thought, you know, once I become famous at 29, then what's left? And I said, well, I don't know. I don't know. I probably gave some stupid answer like, well, you could do some more. <laughs> I don't know. But, but so we, we remained friends. We had the same cleaning lady. We remained friends. Uh, he was awfully good. The show, of course, wasn't that good, uh, but and he did he did his best. But I remember him working with the because Tommy Toon was one of the chorus boys, oh. and so it was it was fun to watch. Yeah, to watch Michael working with with those guys and trying to get them to clog, and uh, and I was watch his feet clogging. And it was it was incredible. It was incredible. But he was he was mean or that he was fun and the, the boy dancers were funny and he let them be funny he you know he, he was very i guess creative i don't know so when i saw what was the next thing chorus chorus line yeah the next thing's chorus line i wasn't surprised uh, but then when he did follies i really went okay this okay now he's famous by that time we had kind of we were moving in the same circles i had moved away and he, he called me after he became famous. I got a phone call from him and I went, oh, Michael remembers me. Oh God, what does he want me to do? Okay, okay. And he just called me to tell me that our cleaning lady died. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so much for that. But no, I, I, I really loved working with him. But as I said, later on, I didn't, I, you know, I moved away and that was it. And I don't think he ever, he may have come out here, but not, not to, to work, so. But that's that. What else do you want to know about the Joyful Noise? Well, I do want to ask you if you sort of had the same sense that he did that he would go on to be famous when you uh, No. No, he no. I mean he he was he was just this little guy who was good. 
And I mean, he was limited. I mean, there was nothing terribly creative, not, not like what he did later on. I mean, he didn't, he didn't really, it really did, it, he did the best he could, but it wasn't something phenomenal. It wasn't an unusual thing to see. It wasn't, because uh, he had, he had a, a country Western band uh, that was the orchestra. I mean, the band, was, was that the orchestra? No, there must've been an orchestra too. Listen, all my shows lasted so short. They were all so short that all I remember about that, uh, well, anyway, to go on about Michael. Um, no, I had no, I had no idea, except that I had his word. He said he was gonna be famous <laughs> by the time he was 29. Okay, okay, maybe I'll be famous too. Won't that be great, Michael? Maybe I said that. And then we go work together again. Oh, eh, eh. So what do I know? I, you know what? But but it was um, uh, it was my my favorite story about Joyful Noise was when we closed. Uh, it was on Christmas Eve <laughs> or the day before Christmas Eve in a blizzard. In a blizzard, and Chris, you're too young to know about the little match girl that goes out in a blizzard and sells matches and stuff like that in New York. But but did I say too little? I meant too young, and. Uh, but it was just like that. I went, I remember Tommy and I and a couple of others were outside. We had to load out. I mean, I had to clean out my dressing room and, and that's a lot, you know, I mean, suitcases full of stuff. And the, the um, uh, crew was unloading everything, taking it all out the back of the stage door in a blizzard. And there was no traffic. I mean, the streets were, were not plowed. It was just, I mean, really, really feet of snow and like you're having now. And um, uh, so we were standing out there and we said, you know, what are we gonna do? And John Wraith, the star had his kids with him. Bonnie, of course, little Bonnie, who was either eight or 11. I remember how old she was, but it was so sad. They were crying, I wasn't, but we, did, we just didn't know what to do. After we were, well, gosh, what are we gonna do? So we all loaded all our stuff and walked up Broadway to Tommy, Tommy says, well, I've got friends who don't live too far away. They live up on 60th and Broadway or something. So we went up there for a party. Uh, it was Marsha Wallace, I don't think. You and she wasn't famous yet either. And uh, we had just a wonderful old time, but I'll, I just remember what that felt like. I, and I think I said, all we need is a little match girl out here selling matches in the, in the blizzard. But, but Joyful Noise was, you know, my, my costumes were kind of odd and I didn't know what to do with my hair. And, John and I then, uh, John Ray and I then went after that, we did uh, a night, nightclub act together. Oh. We went to Chicago and we did some, some charity events and stuff like that. So, and we remained friends. And then we did a lot of summer stock together after the Annie Get Your Gun. There was a lot of Annie Get Your Gun oh. after that. So he was, uh, he was wonderful. I mean, strong and, uh, and I mean, he really knew who he was and the audiences loved him. But we would go out after the shows sometimes, and he would, with with the chorus, uh, and he would, he would talk about himself, which is not unusual. You know, I mean, we're actors. We're on stage. We perform. We like to talk about ourselves, as you know. And uh, he uh, he would talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And of course, he knew nothing but the most famous people that we knew, you know, the Richard Rogers of the world and 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 the directors that he had worked with and all of that. And, and he had done one film. Uh, and finally, after, after all of that for years, I said to somebody, I said, don't let me talk about myself. I said, if I, I said, like John Rick, don't let me talk about myself, just 
shoot me, just shoot me because, because I don't want to do that to, to young people. But here I am doing it to you. But you asked, you asked. Yeah. So, but that's all I remember. I mean, he was then later on, yes, later, um, many, 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 many years later, uh, his wife had died. And Bonnie, of course, you know, became famous and everything. And I was teaching at, at, with Nancy. We were teaching at UCLA in the, the film and theater department. And they, the, I don't know what they call them, but the ones who are responsible for going out and getting donations, you know, there's a whole department of that, got in touch with me and said, listen, you know John Raitt. And by this time he had married very well. In fact, when the last time I had seen him, I, I said, oh, John, how are you? He said, I'm rich. <laughs> I, okay. But anyway, he said, you, how well do you know him? I said, oh, re really well. He said, so we're going to make an appointment. We'll go over to his house and you can tell him about the department and, and all of that. And then maybe we can get them to make a donation. Uh, we'll name a theater after them, blah, 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 blah. So off we go to their home in a very lovely part in Pacific Palisades, which is a lovely part of LA and a lovely home. And oh, he just greeted me. Oh my God, you know, oh God. And he was always telling me either I was fat or I was skinny or something. He always had something to say, depending on my size at the time. And so I told him, you know, we were talking about, about the, the school. I said, you know, now they're really, they're really up with me and Nancy Dussault on the staff and you know, his professors and stuff. And I said, so John, I said, if you were you know, on the board or something like that, I said, what would be your suggestion? What do you think should be included in the curriculum of a college you know, degree in theater? And he said, I don't believe in studying what you do either. You just stand up on a stage and talk. You don't need to learn anything. <laughs> okay, that was the end of that. Uh, the, the bosses and I walked out, you know, my, my head between my legs, I mean, my tail, I went, oh God, oh God. And then he did go on and contribute money to a very small little theater, which was oddly enough connected to an acting school. So you know, I don't know, but I, oh, I was just mortified. And then I never saw him after that. I thought, so that was it. But he was, he was the genuine article. He was definitely the genuine article, so. I do want to ask you sort of a general question, which is if you're working on a show like A Joyful Noise that doesn't end up doing that well, do you manage to sort of stay above getting too involved with it or is it still? What do you mean involved with it? Do you mean, do I, I put the same amount of work in it? I mean, I've, I've had oh. no hits, no hits. <laughs> Summer Stock, I'm a very big thing in Summer Stock and St. Louis, those places. But no, I never had a hit. So, so ask me that question again. I want to listen to it carefully. Oh, well, I was wondering if you try to sort of stay or avoid getting too emotionally involved. Mm. No, no, I, it's hard. I, if you do your job, which is memorizing your lines, memorizing the songs and making them come alive in some way, applying, trying to apply the character. I mean, I always tried to apply the character, at least I thought I did when I listened to myself back then. I go, geez, you were bad. You really couldn't act at all. I mean, I could act, but, but it didn't, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, uh, I didn't go deep enough, but I don't think I could. None of us could, the, because the scripts didn't, it, it wasn't there. And no matter what I tried to find, uh, 
I was involved, of course, because it was a matter of, are we going to be a hit? Am I going to run? Am I going to have a job? Am I, am I going to get terrible reviews? I've got to make this work. I've got to make it work. I never, I tried, I told you, you know, I tried to, to do as best I could, but I didn't have enough time because they hired me you know, late once they got rid of Celeste home. And so it just, no, no, I, I was always involved, but, but not necessarily in the script so much as in surviving <laughs> and doing well with the other people. I mean, it was my very important to work with the other people and hope that they worked with me too. A couple of, a couple of people I worked with whom I shall go nameless really were more into preserving themselves than to being, um, than to, to being a, a good colleague. And uh, one time it was just so blatant that this one person was desperately trying to steal the scene and did indeed steal my scene. I had a great big, huge screen, this scene. And I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I just thought, wow. But that person was only trying to survive, trying to be, trying to be, to do well and be noticed and, and do something with the script. So, but no, I mean, I would get involved professionally, but never, never emotion, not, not really emotionally. Yeah. Not really, just, just emotionally in so much. I got, you know, when it was over, I was, I, oh, I was, I really felt bad when Drood closed oh. because that was really fun. I loved the people and we had gone for, I had gone for six months had my birthday, Joe Papp gave me a birthday party, blah, 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 blah. And when it was over, it was March. The weather was just, uh, and and it was awful. And I, I really got very teary-eyed, very teary-eyed with that, so. So I want to ask you about a few of your movie and TV things that you've done. So the first one was your regular role on the series, Tabitha. That but Tabitha, oddly enough, is the one that's remembered. And I only did 12 episodes. I mean, uh, the show only lasted 12 episodes, but I just did a, a Zoom fan meeting. And every time they have a bewitched oh. club get together, th those of us from Tabitha would be invited. And I just thought, and I would go to these things, there would be lots of people. And I thought, wow, but they loved bewitched so much. And of course, ergo Tabitha. And just last week, I did a, a, a thing where, where the Bewitched fans were on Zoom, uh, 10 or 11 of them. And then only three of us who were, or two of us that are still alive from Tabitha and the producer, the three of us were on. And uh, they asked us questions and they talked about different things. And I, I just went blank. I mean, totally blank because we would do a show and then we would do another show and then we would do another show and another show. And I remember little incidents but I couldn't begin to tell you. And they were going on about, yes, well, you see you and Tabitha met so-and-so. And then they talked, I went, what, what? Was I in that one? Yes, oh, did I have a big part? I did, oh, okay, I don't remember. But it just, but there are people that remember, my gosh, well, you know, you're a fan of people and things. Oh, Do you yes, okay, okay. yes. Oh, I want to ask you next about um, I'm a Fan, which you did with Carol Channing and Dick Van Dyke, the TV special. I did? Yeah, it was about baseball, I believe. Oh my God, you! how do you know about that? Oh, well, I have the CD of it, actually. There's a CD? <laughs> yes, yes, there is. Oh my God, this is, uh, uh, nothing pops into my mind, except when you said that, the baseball, and I went, yes, I remember doing something about baseball. Do you know who else was in it by any chance? 
Um, yet it was Carol Channing and Dick Van Dyke and um, Donna McKechnie and Brandon Maggart and. Wow, yeah, that sounds familiar. Brandon, we call him Buddy, Buddy Maggart. Um, gosh, I don't remember anything. I did sort of work with Dick Van Dyke because when Nancy did her um, pilot, uh, Nancy Clancy, uh, I played her best friend. And Dick was the director, I think. Oh. Carl Reiner, the director. Anyway, Dick was, was, in, was involved because Nancy was on the Dick Van Dyke show, the, the third or the second Dick Van Dyke show. And so, uh, so that was it. We, we, we made, a, made acquainted. I never worked with him. I don't know, but you tell me I did. Wow. Because I, I did a love bowl with Carol Channing, although we never did the same scene. But we did a lot of benefits together. Carol and I, you know, for, for uh, AIDS and for the stage benefits out here and stuff like that. But uh, no, I don't remember. I, I, I'm remembering wearing something. I remember somebody wearing, wearing uh, baseball uniforms, just the tops and baseball caps. I can't imagine what we did. Oh my, That's, that came out of nowhere, Charles. Woo! Go oh, keep surprising me. Go ahead, what's the next? And I do want to ask you if you have any specific memories of game shows or talk shows that you've done. Oh, God. Well, my favorite memory, uh, oh, I did so many. I mean, I was a regular on Merv. Do you know who Merv Griffin was? Yes, yes, I do. It was a whole different kind of talk show than now. I mean, the guys now are quite wonderful. The, Mer the Merv Griffin show that I remember, uh, there are two of them I remember. The first one was because uh, they were filmed in New York at what is now, what used to be the Helen Hayes. I don't know what theater it is now. It was right next door to Sardi's. And it was a blizzard. Hello, same thing that's happening to you now. And so I was booked on the night of the blizzard. And they canceled the show because nobody could get there and everything. And they said, so you'll come tomorrow night. <clears throat> Once they cleared the streets and everything, you'll come tomorrow night, or maybe the day after or something like that. But they had already booked Joanne Worley. I didn't know who Joanna Worley was. Yeah. Okay. Big, big, big voice, big woman. Well, I say big woman, I mean big personality. Big per she wasn't big, big personality. And me with the blonde personality and the big voice. So we ended up on the same show. And Merv, he loved to play tricks. So he said, you know, he said, you guys have the two biggest voices that I've ever heard. He said, I want you to do a duet. And we, we what? This is live. But, uh, uh, okay. So he said, I want you to do uh, Everything's Coming Up Roses. I think, I think it was that. It was something from Gypsy. Y'all this well, you'll be great. I think that's what it was. So he made us stand up. <laughs> and he, I think the band, he, the band course knew what to play. Yeah. And Joanne and I held on to each other around the waist because we, we looked at him and we were, oh my God. So of course we both sang our loudest, loud, loud. The audience went nuts, loud, and Merv just loved it. And then at the end, we held our arms up, me on the left side and Joanne on the right side. Of course, the, the, your audience can't see this. And our arms up in the air like, ta-da! And somebody took a picture of us, Marianne Lapinto, took a picture of us off of the screen and we both had great big, huge sweat marks under our arms. We had been singing so hard, so hard. 
And it was, of course, we laugh about that because we still have that picture. Uh, God bless her. And then the, another thing that really impressed me, well, I was impressed because I was on, on his show because I was always the singer on his show. And then he would have stars. But he had James Brown. Now, he's an African-American soul singer who really would, I feel good. Ah, ah. I mean, it was all that kind of screaming, everything. And he was a dancer and he moved all over the stage. He was spectacular and a real star in that milieu but it, it was absolutely the almost gospel it was it was bigger than gospel and it was rock and roll it was everything he was a major star and a personality and, and small and wiry and just so just packed with energy and Merv uh, did you know what I would like <laughs> I'd like you and James to do a duet well, I suddenly saw my life flash before me. I thought, I can't do what he does. Not in a million years. And he said, oh, that would be nice. And I thought, why, uh, why did you say that, James? Please. So Merv said, I will play for you. Merv loved to play the piano. And the song he loved to play for me was Time After Time. I don't know if you know. Time after time, I tell myself that I'm so lucky. Okay. So I thought, that's a ballad. But I, so I, we sat down, he sat us down together and you know, the center stage. And I looked at him and he looked at me and he had these great big brown eyes and I had brown eyes too, but they weren't quite as brown as his. He had these great big, wonderful, expressive eyes. And he, all of a sudden his eyes softened and he looked me straight in the eye and we started this ballad and he started perfect harmony, perfect harmony never went off, uh -huh, never did any licks, nothing. We just looked at each other and sang this ballad together and so beautifully, I'd give anything to find that clip. I do not have that clip. I don't know who would have that clip, but at the end, I mean, it was, I just, I, I practically fell into his arms. I just almost cried because it was so good. He was wonderful. He changed, I didn't. And you know, when people sing the way he does, even now, I question whether they can really sing. I yeah. just I just think, oh my God, well, they know how to scream and they know how to look about and not pay any attention and everything. He knew how to sing. He had a voice. It was a beautiful voice. He could do that ballad. Oh my God, the audience went nuts. I went nuts. I don't remember. It was in the 60s, I think. Maybe it was in the 70s after I moved out here and went back there because I still would go back there and do. I remember, and I remember Johnny Carson doing Carson's show and he wasn't particularly interested. I wanted to say something to him during the, during the break, during a commercial break. And he, he said something kind of under his breath to me and walked away. So I got on the game shows because of Charles Nelson Riley. We did the, the couples shows. We played a couple. I mean, we were, we were best friends. So I knew, I knew a lot about him and he knew a lot about me. So we kept winning those game shows. We kept beating the married couples because we knew so much about each other. But he got me on the match game and all that stuff. And uh, uh, those were, oh God, I love doing those. Those were great fun. Yeah, so yeah. I remember working with some famous people at the time, but I don't remember their names now. I'm so sorry, but that's what happens when one gets a little older and I don't keep a record. I, I was very bad about that. I didn't keep pictures. I didn't take pictures, which I really regret. 
for one reason only. And that is when I started doing public appearances like on, on crystal cruises or something like that. And people would, would want me to be the guest and, that, and be interviewed about my career. I had no clips to show them about all the famous people I worked with. I mean, the Jim Neighbors Hour, uh, we had two big, big time guests every week and I did two years and each year was 22 weeks. So I, so there's 44, 88 people I worked. I mean, some were, were repeats, of course, Carol Burnett and, and stuff like that. But uh, I never had my picture taken with anybody except Rock Hudson because he wanted a picture of all of us. So that was fine. But so I regret that. I totally regret that because then I could have gone back and looked and, and see, you know, whatever, whoever he was, but he was and what I did. Yeah. Not so, not so. I do want to ask you about um, one guest shot you did on a series, which was Good Heavens with Carl Reiner. And if you remember anything about working with Carl Reiner? My dear Charles, I don't remember that, but I certainly remember Carl because he was involved with Nancy's pilot and, uh, and I would always run into him. I mean, he was very interested in, I think he came to see me and, and Nancy do our act together and stuff. He just was always around and, and, and uh, I shouldn't say always around, but whenever I saw him, he was always very cordial and God knows he, oh, may, wait a minute, wait a minute. I did a series with Sid Caesar. God, yes. Uh, when, 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 when your show of shows went off the air, uh, that was the end of it. That was the, the big Sid Caesar show. See, but uh, years later, when, when, um, uh, when, when uh, Sid Caesar was doing Little Me on Broadway, and I had auditioned for that too late. He wanted me to do a role in there, but it was too late. They'd already hired somebody else. So he remembered me, and when they decided to do a, a, a redo of the series of your show of shows, they hired me. And the, the, the thing was, he didn't want to learn, he didn't want to learn any new scripts, Sid, because he was doing a show, eight shows on Broadway. So he would come in on Sunday, which used to be our day off. We would do a dress rehearsal and then, and then we would do uh, a night, it would be live. And of course, we would do all the same scripts that he did years ago. So while he was working all week, we were memorizing the old scripts and the old blocking. And so Carl was around then too. And trying to help us get through all of this. Ah, yes, now it's coming back to me. And uh, it just never worked because Sid couldn't remember. He would come in and he couldn't remember what he had done. We were all just perfect, but he couldn't remember what he had done. And it never, it never went, it never went. Yes. And I remember Sid had a little tiny dressing room and he would lie up there between the, the dress and the air tape. He would lie with his head under the counter. <laughs> Oh, because it was so small and his feet would stick out in the hall and we that's where we would have our meeting and we'd be out in the hall looking at his feet and trying to have a meeting it was it was not a good thing I think it probably lasted about two weeks or maybe even three weeks maybe not even that long so but but those guys were geniuses I mean Carl and Mel and so I want to go back to your stage work to ask you about touring the country and Oliver which you did in the 70s. So no, you, got, you got that mixed up. I didn't tour with Oliver. I did that here on the West Coast. It was oh. a new West Coast production. I did that with Ron Moody, the, the star. 
of, of that. What that I was, it was interesting. Uh, Ron Moody was very moody. <laughs> he, I know, and he, he was okay. I mean, he wasn't mean or anything like that, but he didn't like me doing the job, the role, because he felt I looked like a Hallmark card. He said, you look like a bloody Hallmark card. Um, he said, George, he said, we hated each other. And she was dark. He said that really served the, the, the role well. And I went, well, then I mean, I don't want to, I don't hate anybody, Ron. I'll just, I'll do my best. And uh, I mean, he was very nice to me and everything, but he just really, he really thought I was too blonde and too perky and all that stuff. Well, I'm odd because in the movie, he did it with Janie Wallace, who was adorable and perky and everything. And the Bill Sykes was a friend of mine. Oh. John um, Cypher, who was Charles Nelson Riley's best friend. They had grown up together and all that stuff. Okay. Our biggest problem was the dog. We couldn't find a dog who could be trained well enough to run across the stage, go up the stairs. You know, there's a scene where the dog has to run across the stage and go someplace so that we know that Bill Sykes is coming. Oh, But uh, we, when, when he killed me, when he would kill me on stage, he would take me behind uh, a staircase and he would, and I would fall down so that you couldn't see me. So the audience could not see me, but there was a volleyball there that was wedged somehow into the set. And he would take his truncheon or whatever the thing is called. And he would hit that volleyball and you'd hear thud, thud, thud. Ostensibly he was hitting my head, killing me. Thud, thud. And the audience would gasp and everything. And then, then I would have to lie there till the end of the show because I couldn't crawl out because people would see me. Well, one night he was going thud, thud, thud. And the dog came out and started attacking him <laughs> for, for doing that. And then I don't know, I, don't know he, I think he picked him up and took him off or something like that. And, uh, and the dog would always get distracted. Then one night we did the same thing dog was out of the way and it was a thud 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 and the ball became dislodged and rolled out onto the stage <laughs> so that everybody knew he wasn't hitting me he was hitting this white volleyball in the middle oh god oh god things like that things like that i remember but anything else i don't remember any scenes i don't remember i don't even remember any songs i, I mean i know what i had to sing but none of it lived in my body like those two moments did. And then one time John had to turn around and, and slap me and I had to make sure I, I got my head out of the way and, and something went wrong and he really hit me. He really hit me. I know and it was terribly painful. John was strong and he kind of had, you know, he had enough guts in him. So we had a rehearsal the next day and I, oh, it was awful. I hated it because he blamed me, of course, because I didn't, <clears throat> Cause he couldn't see me. anyway. And I just, I hated that. I hated that. I didn't want my friend to blame me for, for doing anything wrong, but needless to say, I kept my distance on stage, uh, yeah. you know, from him after that, because it was, it was painful. So. so I want to ask you about the evening with Jerry Herman, which you did with him and Leroy Reams. So was that the first time that you had worked with Jerry Herman or had you met before that? Oh God. Yes. We had met. That's why he, booked me to do all these things. I auditioned for him a thousand times and, uh, <clears throat> and he liked me. He always, he always liked me and he always liked the audition song that I did. He would always ask that I do the same song. 
you know, I don't remember, I don't remember the, the timing, but uh, I may have done a concert. I know I have done several concerts singing if he walked into my life. And you know, I was booked by other people with orchestras and stuff. But he decided to do that recording. He decided to do the recording. And of course he loved Leroy and, and he liked me. And so, so Leroy and I, before we did the record, we were booked at the Rainbow and Stars at the top of, of NBC or whatever, the Rockefeller Center. And, and do an evening, and he played, he played, we had a, we had a dr drummer, yeah. Do we have a drummer? I was with you, do we have a guitar or do we have a drummer? This is terrible, I don't remember. And so it was after we had a successful run of that and we did very well, then he decided to record that. But what we did, we recorded it in a studio. Leroy and I and 5 million other people did the huge show at um, the Hollywood Bowl, yeah. which was very exciting. And, um, but we all were very worried because Jerry was really ill. He was oh. really ill at that point. And he really didn't think he was gonna make it. And he was sitting in the front. So we all of us, you know, got together backstage and said, we're doing this for Jerry. Okay, okay, we're doing this for Jerry. God bless him, we're doing this for Jerry. And uh, I mean, it was quite a spectacle to, to walk out on the stage by myself with this huge orchestra behind me and look up and there are 18,000 people. 18,000. But I looked down, down at Jerry and I'd go, do it for Jerry, do it for Jerry. And then right then, right about then, he, there was a new protocol for, for HIV uh, victims of HIV, and he was able to get that. And then he lived for another, what, 20, 25 years after that, which was great. <clears throat> that evening was unbelievably exciting. Unbelievable. Have you and seen I do want to ask you what it was like to be performing with Leroy Reams when you were doing the duet show with Sherry Herman and what that was. Huh? Well, I had already worked with, with Leroy. We had done Oklahoma together. I was Ada Wanny and he was uh, Will, Will Parker. <clears throat> we had done that somewhere in the Midwest. And I think we probably had done a lot of other things. I don't know, because we were, you know, approximately the same age. He's younger than I am. No, we had a great time. I mean, I, but what's, what's not to have a good time with Leroy? Yeah. Was, but I remember, I remember uh, one day before, before the show, uh, I was having my dinner in my hotel because I was living out here in my hotel room and a piece of raw carrot went down the wrong pipe. And so it, it, it lodged in my vocal cords in one little spot so that I couldn't, I could sing above that note and I could sing below the note. And I was just, I mean, it was really awful. It was really awful. And Leroy, you know, of course was just, you can do it. <laughs> You're gonna be fine. I'll cover for you if you needs be and like that. And, uh, but I mean, I got through it. It took me a while because that had to kind of heal. I mean, it really, it really was rough on, on the vocal cord. So, but it was hard going up in that elevator up to the top. My ears would plug up. And I remember going to, um, to a throat doctor, not because of the carrot, but because it was, I felt <clears throat> something and I thought my ears had something to do with that. And I thought I went to a throat doctor and he said, no, that I had some sort of a little something called Klebsiella. I'll never forget that name. I, I can't remember names of people I worked with, but I can remember Klebsiella. 
and uh, it was a little uh, like a virus, a little sinus thing, something like that. So I want to ask you, since you knew Jerry Herman, when you did Hello Dolly, as you did, was he there to do that with you or? Yeah, yeah, out here. He, um, uh, I, I, the first time I did it was, I don't remember the first time I did it, but, but one of the times I did it, it was a big theater out here and he wanted to work with me, wanted to coach me. And uh, so I went over to his house, we went through the script and stuff like that. But then he said, darling, he said, how would you like to sing a song that I wrote for Ethel? And she's the only one that has ever done that song. How would you like to do it? I went, oh my God, Jerry, oh, oh, oh. I said, of course, of course. It really, it, it was a, it's a love song called Love Look in My Window. And it's a lovely song, but it kind of, it was right before before the parade passes by. And I thought, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if I want to do a ballet. I don't know, I don't know. But I did it and I loved doing it. And, and he was thrilled by it. So every time we traveled, I mean, any time we did a show out of town, he would always include that and he'd tell the story. He'd say, and then I said to Karen, how would you like to do <laughs> the song? And what was Karen's reaction? At first I, I screamed and then I went, no, I said, that's bad, Jerry. I don't want to scare you screaming in your ears. So I just, you know, put on a great big grin and then, we did. and then he would play that song for me. But as he got older, his fingers, God bless him, his fingers weren't as nimble as they were. So, uh, so he would play more slowly, which was really I had to love. Look in my window, love, knock on my door. Uh, oh, <laughs> I went, oh gosh, oh gosh. Uh, but he loved doing that. And he loved when I would go to the big notes. He loved the big belting notes. That was his favorite thing. His favorite singer was, well, I love you're asking me questions and you, you don't know any of these people. But Edie Gourmet uh, had this wonderfully alive voice that she could sing high. I mean, but that was his, she originally re, um, recorded If He Walked Into My Life. And it was kind of a hit before, you know, that, that, that made him, that and Hello Dolly, the, the, from, from what's his name, from Satchmo, Louis Armstrong, put him on the map, so. I do know who Edie Gourmet is. She per, she was Steve Lawrence's wife and she performed with him. And, yes. And in Golden Rainbow. Right? Yes, yes. Nancy and I do a song from that. Oh. Yes, oh, called we, uh, we Got Us. Life is a funny thing, sometimes you laugh and sing. Yeah, we do. We did that in our act. In fact, we were thinking of doing it again for the, for this. Oh, we're doing a um, call it. We're, we're doing an evening with other with uh, nine other women oh. called the Chick Singers, Chicky Singers. And so I'm trying to talk her into doing that. Do it. It's all on film. I mean, you know, we have to film ourselves. And I talked to the to the engineer, the woman who's going to. And I call it the engineer, but she'd be the producer. I said. How, how can we do a duet in two different places? So I can do that, we can do that. So I'm trying to talk Nancy into doing it. I don't think she's too crazy about the idea, but, but uh, anyway, I might do it anyway, by myself. <laughs> so, so I want to ask about another Broadway show that you did, which was The Selling of the President. Oh, yes. <laughs> 
I'm sure your people have turned off their radios or their radios, their podcasts by now. That was, oh God, that was the worst moment of my life. Um, well, they, I had just done Grass Harp and they thought that my character would be perfect as the female lead in Selling of the President, where I would be the advertising executive <clears throat> in charge of the, uh, of the, um, uh, of, his, of his run to be president. And, but they decided I wouldn't sing. They decided there would be no solos. Oh. There would just be um, commercials. The only singing would be commercials. So they had a chorus to do the commercials. Isn't that interesting? So, geez, and I, I remember I told you before I couldn't act my way out of a paper bag. Uh, I, I could act a little bit, but I mean, I really couldn't act in this. And it was all on my shoulders. Oh my God. Well, I know that um, Barbara Berry and Pamela Myers were both in it, but. I Barbara Berry was the wife. She didn't have any songs, but Pam and a whole bunch of, of Broadway people who went on were in that chorus. And, uh, oh, there was the, the fellow who went on to do uh, a, a series in Florida who was very big with the purple suits and all that stuff, uh, an African-American guy was in the chorus. And I mean, all these people went on to become who they became were in the chorus. And I, it was so bad and I was really not helping it any. So they kept changing my costume. Maybe if she wore a shoe, one color shoe on one foot and another color shoe on the other foot, maybe that would make her more interesting. Okay, well, that didn't work. How about we go to Halston? Halston at that time was Liza Minnelli's designer and all that stuff. Well, let's get Halston to do a dress for her. That maybe that'll help. Nope, that didn't help. And uh, we lasted, I don't know how long we lasted, two days or something like that. But uh, I was terrified. But anyway, I don't think it was opening night, but maybe it was a preview or maybe it was a few nights after we opened. And I, I didn't have the last bow. I had the second, second to the last bow. And I came out on stage in my Halston outfit and I took a deep bow embarrassed because I knew I was bad. And a couple of guys in the, in the orchestra, in the, not the band, but in, in the orchestra seating. Yeah, you should have sung, honey. They yelled it out to me on stage. And I thought, and I looked at them and I went like, and I shook my head, yes, yes, I should have sung. The reviews were very interesting because I didn't know, I didn't, I, I didn't think that the critics were interested in me or anything like that, but but universally the critics said that it was terrible and how stupid to have a musical and not have Karen Morrow sing. <laughs> I thought, oh, they remember me as a singer, how nice. After all the reviews of the, the terrible shows that I had done, it was, it was awful, just awful. Yeah. Oh, it was just terrible. I don't even remember who directed it. Who directed it? Robert H. Livingston. Oh, Bob Livingston. Oh, I then I think he was let go. And then I can picture him again. I can picture him stepped in to rewrite it and to direct it. He was, he was writing and then he stepped into, oh God, this is awful that I can't remember. I can picture him again. He, he went down, he became very famous, became very famous director. Uh, down oh, from um, Jack O'Brien. Thank you. You're so good. Thank you. You have that in front of you. Good. Jack O'Brien. Yeah. 
he stepped in and directed. And then he went on to become Jack O'Brien. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was there at the beginning of all of them. <laughs> even, even when I did, uh, well, we haven't gotten that far yet, Drew, but uh, that was that, oi, oi, I can't believe it. That's why I love doing television because you shoot it and it's over and that's it. You know, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, I love singing on television, but oh boy, oh boy, hated that. So is there, was there a particular reason that you took a bit of a break from Broadway after this point or longer than you had before? Uh, yeah. Um, I had, uh, well, I had started doing stuff out here. When was the last show? I mean, before Drew, what was the last show I had done? Was it, was it that? Was it Selling of the President? Yeah. I don't know. Okay. So I can't remember. Do you remember what year that was? Do you have that in front of you? I think that was 1972. Oh my God. You're right. No. Yes. Cause I did grass harp right before that. That's after I had moved out here. Well, I started doing well out here and I started doing pilots and there was, there was, uh, I was asked to do, Nancy and I were both asked to do side by side by Sondheim when the Brit, when the Brits had to leave and oh. the show. And, uh, and I, I you know, Sondheim asked us to do that. We were, I was just delighted, but I was under contract to ABC because I had done pilots. I had done all these flop pilots too. And when, 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 you, when you do a pilot, you have to sign on for seven years is what you have to do or four years or whatever it is. And uh, uh, at least for the run. And so I was getting one after another, after another, after another. They didn't sell, of course. But then I did, started doing the game shows and the guest shots and, and all of that. And I was doing summer stock and I was really earning a nice living. And I thought, what? And, but people kept asking me to come back to and I would say to them, why, why would I go back and do that? It, it hurt. It just was all, all flops. And, and I always would say when I'm invited to go to New York, I have to go to New York in a fever because I have to rent an apartment. I have to do something with my house here. I have to pack all sorts of things up. I have to talk and get my bills paid. It, it was never an easy thing. So I didn't want to go back. No way did I want to go back there until Drew came along, well, until I moved back there. I moved back there just to see uh, what would happen. And I, I stayed there for two years and did Drew in, in the meantime and, and decided, because I thought maybe I'd move back. And I came back home here and I said, no, no, New York is too hard. It's, you, you live hard, you eat hard. <laughs> it's, I loved, I loved the, out here, the sunshine and the, and I, it, Broadway was hard. It just, theater is really hard. I mean, I've done theater since, but hard, hard, hard. But also, also teaching at UCLA, it, it, it came in too. Uh, I was, I mean, I was hired by, I think I taught there, what, three, four years, something like that. And um, a lot of the shows I didn't, I, I couldn't take off. I couldn't take off. So, and I love to teaching. Love it, love it. I still do. I just, I mean, I'm still teaching. I love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. So I do want to ask you about the mystery of Edwin Drood. So what was your sort of audition or coming into that like? Oh, I auditioned. Yeah. I, I, I was there for a while and I had done, I had done a little concert, uh, a welcome back. And, and of course I had done cabaret and stuff there. 
And so I was kind of known, kind of. And so my agent got me an audition and it just, the part just fit me like a glove. Yeah. I just, I could pretend that I was Cockney and all that stuff and I, and I could do my shtick. And, and then besides I could sing pretty as well. And the big voice and the big face and all of that. And uh, they said, great, because we have to replace Cleo for the summer. And I said, great. I said, because I don't teach in the summer. Great, 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 great. Just great. Of course, I was living there then. So I wasn't back out here. But anyway, great. Everything was great, great, great. And I did come back out here to, to do something. I'm sorry. I, I'm confused as to when I left and when I came back. And uh, then they called me, agent called me and said, they've got Loretta Sweat. I went, excuse me? Because they had said, you know, you're it. Loretta Sweat, they said, well, she's more famous than you. And the summer, in the summer, that's all the tourists and they need her to do the part. And I understood, I've, I've never, ever, ever got mad at somebody else getting a job, ever because everybody is unique and, and there's a reason why each one of us is chosen at the time we're chosen. And uh, so then when she decided to leave, they went, quick, get Karen <laughs> and get her back. So, and I wasn't, I wasn't particularly doing anything. And so, yeah. So I went back and my agent made a really good deal. Thank God, you know, I got nice, nice pay. And uh, I really love doing that because again, I didn't have to sell so hard. I just had to kind of be, say the lines and sing the songs. And I didn't have to, I didn't have to work hard at it at all because it was nicely written and I loved the people and they were friends from before. And uh, I, that really made me say, I really cried the day that that closed. Yeah. I, I, I told you before, I was really, I was really super involved, but the, ro the role was fun. Yeah. And I forgot my words one night, um, which was, I don't know if you know the score, but at some point she comes out on stage by herself and she says, crime down pay. That's what I tells them if it did. And then she talks and now talks to the violinist and all that stuff. And one night in February, I went in in December and in February, I walked out of the stage and went, crime down pay. And I, it was very quiet. It was very quiet. And I thought, I don't hear the orchestra. What? It's just too quiet out here. It's not supposed to be so quiet. And I realized the reason why it was quiet is because I wasn't singing. <laughs> I had totally forgotten the words. I had totally, I had just, my brain, my brain just, you know, froze. And I couldn't, I couldn't get in. People said, you know, that happens after, after a long run. But I had never been in a long run. So, so I stopped. And of course, the, 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 the audience knew I could talk to the orchestra, talk to them. And I went, Excuse me, maestro. <laughs> I got my words. <laughs> and I looked at him, and it, at that point, oh, it was the original conductor. Ah, oh, people are going to know this. They're going to be screaming at the at the at the screen. Anyway, he didn't have the score in front of him because he was so smart. He was so on top of it. You know, he knew it by heart, and he was conducting the big stir, not Sir Robin. No, Sir Robin is that a good name? Doing all this. Oh. And he just stared at me with great big eyes. Like, I don't know it either. And they had had a, they had a substitute pianist in the pit, way in the back of the pit was where the, where the keyboard was, who had the score in front of him because he was a sub. 
Nobody else had the square. They all knew what they were doing. So he sent the word up to, to the conductor what my lines were. And then I said my lines. But, oh, that was the most frightening thing. Most frightening thing. But loved it, loved it, loved it, loved doing Drew. Loved it, loved it. And I want to ask you about working with, and I think you were mentioning Joe Papp about what it was like to. Yeah, well, I had worked with him when we did, uh, uh, when, when, when the, the, the chorus line people uh, all wanted to, do, wanted to do a show based on Ed Kleban's work that was in the trunk. So I had worked, and it was the show wasn't going anywhere. And I was did I say this before? And I was I was paying rent at a at a hotel, living out here, and all of that. It was a, quite an expense. So I went to Joe Papp, and I said, Joe, and, and everybody was complaining. Everybody, Bobby Balaban, David Garrison, uh, 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 Lopez, Lopez, oh, oh, Priscilla Lopez, Priscilla, God bless her, Priscilla Lopez, and. And a, and a whole bunch of others they were all complaining about it. it just wasn't being done. It wasn't getting done. So I went into Joe's office and I said, Joe, I said, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> I was so dramatic. The emperor has no clothes. Nothing's being done. We're not getting anywhere. And I'm spending all this money. And he looked at me and he said, this emperor has clothes. And I went, oh, oh, oh. oh he put me in my place. So I said, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm sorry. I said, but I, I have to quit. So he let me go, at which point Ed Kleban took me behind the bleachers because they were putting up bleachers in this, this new theater to do this show. And he screamed at me and read me the riot act. I said, geez, Ed, I said, you're turning blue. I said, your lips are blue. You're so angry. I just, it was funny. It was just so funny. So I told you know the rest of the people in the show. I said uh, I just had the behind the bleachers piece. Well, after that, other people started to quit, and and then they would call me and they'd say I had the the back behind the bleachers speech today. <laughs> but but so that all. But but Joe had given me an, uh, a birthday party when I did Drude, when I knew to Drude. He was talked into it uh, by by the, the PR people because they they invited all the Broadway stars who were around at that time. You know Betty Buckley and and uh, Tommy and all those people. And uh, uh, and that was nice, you know, I sent him a nice big thank you, you know, and a big cake and the people and stuff. But you know who the, who the assistant choreographer was on Dad? Oh, no. Graziella Daniele did it. And her assistant was Robbie Marshall. So Rob Marshall, the, the film director, the big film director now, put me in that show. And we would laugh, we would laugh so hard because we would go and watch uh, Swit, Loretta Swit. We would, we would watch Loretta Swit every night. I had to be there and watch every night. I just wanted to. We would stand in the back of the theater, but Loretta kept doing funny little things to get herself elected as the killer at the end. You know, she kind of inserted herself in every scene and would flash her knife and stuff. And we got to laughing so hard. You know, we would count how many times she would, it's not in the script, but she would find ways to get herself elected the killer. <clears throat> and he was wonderful. He was just wonderful. And then he went on to become Rob Marshall. Thank you very much. <laughs> what was it like to have to have that experience on stage of not knowing if you were going to have to do that final number not knowing to be the killer right now there was another there was another part too the lover they each learned the lover's part too well at that point i had just turned 50 so i was still my brain was still working pretty well i always prayed not to 
I really didn't want to work any harder than I had to, but I wanted to do the lover. So that usually it was, I was the lover with the, but you know, I didn't even know that I played two parts until out here, there was a local company that decided to do Drude and asked me to come as a, as a guest, you know, from the original company, well, the almost original company. And so I sat there and I watched it and I went, oh, my name was Martha Prysock. We were, we were play actors. I don't remember that. I went, oh my God. That's why we came out and there you are. We came out as the actors, first of all, and then went and assumed roles. I said, I learned that show so fast. And so, you know, so I was so involved in what I was learning in such the short time that I had to learn it. Oh my God. Oh my God. Some, to, to, to answer your question, that's why I love doing television in front of <laughs> all made up and glamorous with cue cards. Cue cards are nice too. So I want to ask you about doing a show off Broadway, which was Music Music, which you did with Alan J. Lerner and Martin Charney. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Donna McKechnie and Larry and, Kurt and uh, a whole bunch of others. Will McKenzie, I remember, who went on to become a great director, first of all, voiceover artist, and then a great director out here in television. Um, it was fun. We laughed a lot. Larry Kurt and I laughed. They finally had to separate us. They had to, they had to, when we were in the dressing and the rehearsal, they said, no, 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 you have to. And because we did, we did a number where we had to do seriously the lyrics of a rock and roll song. And we would have to do it like uh, an, an, like, a, like an orator. We each had to respond. So I chose to be an orator. I met him on a Monday and his life was a, well, it, we got to laughing so hard about that. But the point was that, that nobody came. We had Dan Daly to be the star who was a very big movie star, dancer, actor. First day of rehearsal, he sprained his ankle. So that was it. So they got Gene Nelson, who I've always loved as a dancer and an actor. But he was, I don't know, he, he, he just wasn't quite there. I mean, he, 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 he was in New York and he was spending his time with friends and, and, and we were trying to make a, a go of this show. Yeah. What happened was um, they never finished a song. The whole thing was one medley going from practically, yeah, they would say, uh, we would do and then they wrote, and then we did this, and then we did that. And then along came the Second World War, and then, oh, <laughs> but when after the Second World War, there was never any, any time for applause. No son, a number was finished until one night, again, somebody yelled out from the audience, finish the song. It was just so obvious. It just didn't do well. And we never knew when we would leave Sunday, we would leave Saturday night. We never knew if we would be doing a show on Monday or not. We'd have to call in Monday morning to see if enough people had bought tickets so that we could. So I was always going out to Nancy's farm on the weekend with her husband and the gang. And then, then we would have to call Monday morning to see if I had a show. And then we would, if I did, then we drove back. But then finally, we they said, no, don't bother coming back. Awful, awful. Yeah. So I want to ask you about a theater that you've done a lot of shows at, which is not really theater, but the Kenley Players you've done. Players, yeah. Well, that was wonderful. I mean, please. He always hired uh, TV stars, like former TV stars or 
movie stars or stuff like that because it was out in the Midwest. Well, uh, Ohio isn't really, well, it was kind of the Midwest. And uh, came out and did interesting shows. And he was a character. I don't know, do you know anything about him? Oh, about I John Kenley? Not that much, but I did want to ask you about him. And yeah, well, I think this is common knowledge. I don't think, but in the summer, he was a man. And in the winter down in Florida, he was a woman. I mean, th th back then that was really odd, but, uh, but still, I mean, he was the founding fathers, the powers that be in Ohio were so grateful to him because he had this whole summer stock thing. And he would charge only a dollar uh, for, the, for the seats in the back for people. And then, and then he did that, but he, he was so wonderful. Oh, funny, delicious, lovely guy. And uh, he would do, I don't know how many shows a summer, but we would do, we would rehearse while there was a show going on at night. He had three theaters, Warren, Dayton and Columbus. It, it went on to other things later, but when I was, when it was hot, it was Warren, Dayton and Columbus. And we would rehearse during the day while another show was going on at night. Then we'd get to the end of our rehearsal week and the, the night show would then go to the next town and then we would open at night and then while we were rehearsing at night, while we were singing at night, somebody was rehearsing during the day. And then when we finished, we would go on to the next town and push the other one out. So it was just, it was a round robin. And it wasn't all, um, it wasn't all musicals. I think, I think there were a couple of plays in there too, yeah. but we just had so much fun. Oh God, I loved it. I just loved it. Again, it was only a week long. Well, three weeks actually. And um, this I got paid well, stayed in very nice motels that they had for the theater people. And uh, John was lovely. He lived to be 106. Oh. Yeah. And uh, he lived down in Florida. And uh, I do hear from his, well, I did, I don't, I don't hear from him anymore. Perhaps they're not with us any longer. His niece and nephew, because they were going to do a book about him. Oh, I got, I got a, um, if somebody interviewed me about a book, I, he was writing about the Kenley players because John was so different, and, but he had, but it was, he, he was such a successful producer and humongously successful. And, and they, people loved him. All the actors loved him. There was never, never an unkind word. And he would laugh sometimes about his, about him being a woman in, in the uh, winter. And uh, I don't think many people, many people in the public knew that. But I think later on it was let known. I don't think I'm spilling any beans on, on him here because the people who are listening to you are probably theater people. So they know, so. So I do want to ask you if you had liked the experience of doing plays as you did here since you hadn't done that on Broadway. But Very smart question. You're a smart person. Uh, yeah, I love doing Mac and Mabel. We did the first production uh, after Broadway and I loved doing that. I loved doing, well, King and I was really funny. I, I mean, I had just done a funny role. And then he asked me to uh, then come back in two weeks and do King and I. Would I play Mrs. Anna? No, he wanted me to play Lady Tian. Oh. <laughs> I went, what? He was blonde, I'm as blonde as blonde could be. So he went, no, no, because he would, he would interpolate pop songs and stuff like that in the middle of the score. 
So the song, the, the famous song that Lady Tiang sings, he may not always say what you would have him say. So he wanted me to sing that on a stand-up mic up the stairs to the right of the stage, up on a balcony. And he had a dress in wardrobe. There was a dress in wardrobe that was Liza Minnelli's black gown cut on the bias. So it was like a real 20s sexy gown. And I would have to go up there with my black hair and the big braid. I'm, oh man, because I dressed like Lady Tiang yeah. during the rest of the show. But now I had to go and look like a, a sexy nightclub singer up at the top there. And, and, and he had me lower the had the orchestra orchestration lowered by a fourth. So instead of going, he may not always, he may not always say, oh, that was that was John. And um, I, I, so, I mean, I did that. I did so many roles. I'm trying to think of what else I did that I didn't get to do anywhere else. Oh, I did Good News. I did the Singable Molly Brown, which I had done. I had done Good News. I had done a lot of things. I can't, Anything Goes. Oh, I did Anything Goes, yeah. That was new and I like doing that. I've done that many places, but I don't remember which went, went where I did it first, but. I, I know you also did um, Cam Cam and the play Whoopi. Oh, thank you, Can Can. Uh, that's another funny one. There were wonderful people working there, but I wasn't the star, even though I was doing a starring role. It was just understood that I would, I would do the, the hard work, but then a movie star would come in. And that was Joey Heatherton, whom you probably don't know, who was playing um, the Gwen Verdon part or whoever, or not the Gwen Verdon part, but, but the, the Shirley MacLaine part. And there was, I'm trying to think of the, the song was I Love Paris, I think was the big song. And John told me, he said, I hope you don't mind. He said, but we have to do this, darling. We have to do this. He said, Joey is going to do your two famous songs, okay? <laughs> It was that and another one. It wasn't Say Magnifica. It was another one that was popular. So I just went, what? And he said, I'm sorry, darling, but you know, she's selling, she's selling the tickets and not you. So that was disappointing. However, after opening night, her father, her father came up, came to Ohio to watch her. And then, then he worked with her every day after that. And Joey came to my dressing room the second night after the reviews and everything came out and she apologized for taking the songs away from me and said, I, you just, you just are so, you know, you're so good and all that stuff. And I, and I, you should be singing those songs. And then her father worked with her with those two songs uh, every day to make sure that she did them as well as she possibly could. But that's what he would do. That's what he would do, he would take songs away. And they would do the same in St. Louis too. Uh, not as much because Paul Blake was a much more of a theater man, but uh, they would interpolate, you know, a song of somebody made famous or something like that, just yeah. to, to, do, to sell the tickets. Or not, not to disappoint the audience. Oh, yeah. And do you remember anything else about other movie stars who you'd worked with on other shows there? I'm trying not there, but, but in Sacramento, and in, and in Melody Top, Sacramento was, was the, a, a big theater in there on the big thing out here on the West Coast. And I remember Gordon McRae being booked with Gordon to do the unsinkable Molly Brown. And I thought, Gordon McRae, because I was so in love with Gordon McRae, come on. 
And I thought, I, I, is he too old? What, what, what? So one day, Gordon called me at home here. And uh, he said, hi, Karen, this is Gordon McRae. And I went, no kidding. <laughs> Gordon. And he said, I was wondering if I could come over. I, I have a piece of music or something I want to give to you. So one day he came over and I, I was living in a little house in West Hollywood. And I had a piece of music uh, out on, on my coffee table that I was working on. And he sat down and he was talking to me. And then he said, oh, I know this song. And he picked it up and he went, you're born, you weep, you smile, you sleep. And I thought, and I'm going, Gordon McRae is singing to me in my living room. Oh my God. And the same thing happened when I would be on stage with him and he'd be singing a love song to me across the stage. And I just say, Karen, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think that Gordon McRae was going to be singing a love song to you in person? Did you ever think? I was just so wiped out about that. I was just so grateful. Billy DeWolf. Um, there were, and when I was in Chicago too, there was Melody Top. Melody Top was the big tent place in the circuit. And that's where Tommy Toon, I met Tommy for the first time. He was the choreographer of Little Me that I was doing. And then he went on to become Tommy Toon. So, I mean, but, but then he wasn't even, hadn't even been on Broadway. So. so I do want to ask you about um, two sort of big Broadway things that you did, like specials. One was the Tonys and one was Happy Birthday, Mr. Abbott, which. Yeah, well, I, Happy Birthday, Mr. Abbott, I was a sub, a sub for, for Liza. I don't know what was wrong with Liza, but anyway, uh, that was so thrilling and, and scary uh, because in the dressing room, and I'm not going to be able to name all these people, were all these famous movie stars, Broadway stars that had ever worked with George Abbott. And I, there I was in the dressing room with them, and I, I just couldn't get over it. I could not get over it. But I had to do that all the song. Sing me a happy song about flowers in spring, which just goes on and on. Sing me a happy... It just is bang, 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 belt, 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 belt. And of course I hadn't been rehearsing it, but I mean, I walked out there and I just thought, go for broke, Karen, this is it, just go for broke. And I did, I mean, I sang it fine, um, you know, belting, yelling, screaming. And uh, then afterwards I had quit smoking. I, I smoked a little bit up until, up until my second week in Drood. And I thought, why am I smoking? I'm on Broadway, was this nuts? So when it was, when it was all over, uh, famous, famous lady, famous, famous, famous lady. And she, uh, she, I said, can I bum a cigarette? Because she was going out into the alley to smoke. She said, of course. So I went out in the alley. I said, I gave up smoking. I had, I just had to smoke. I, Arlene Francis. Oh, whew, thank you. Arlene Francis. So the two, Arlene and I were out in the back behind the, the, uh, the Palace Theater smoking, smoking regular cigarettes, not smoking dope. But I mean, I was just, I was spent, absolutely spent bent yeah. from doing that song. But there were these, these wonderful ladies. I mean, I'm, there were no men in the dressing room. They were in their own dressing room. But these wonderful ladies, you know, they each had their own idiosyncrasies and some of them were nervous and some of them hadn't been on stage in a thousand years and they were scared and 
they had people there comforting them and trying to console them and to get them on stage. It just was interesting to see all that, to see them be just as vulnerable and as, as human as possible. And I had seen them all on screen or on stage being, or on television being magnificent. And I went, ah, oh, ah, oh, we're all in the same boat, gotcha. And to watch them put their makeup on, oh, please. Oh, please. That was hysterical, really hysterical. So I want to ask you next about doing the tour of Showboat, which you were mentioning and working with Hal Prinson. Well, I actually, Hal did not put me into it. I mean, he, he booked me, but he didn't put me into it because uh, it was the Broadway company. They closed and uh, his, I was going to say his, his associate, Ruthie, oh, Ruth Mitchell, Ruth Mitchell. Yeah. He put us in and the stage manager put us in and the, the new people and a lot of actually, I was probably the only new person because the others had all been like standbys and, and understudies and stuff like that for the role in, on Broadway. And uh, I loved doing that. Oh boy, did I love doing that. Well, Tom Bosley, that's right, Tom was new. So the two of us were new. But the thing about that is that I, I only had to sing one song and it was really easy. I didn't have a big part. I'm, I mean, I didn't have to be on stage all the time. I could just be myself. Uh, so I could go out afterwards, maybe and have a drink with friends, which is what I would never ever do if I were doing a bigger part. You would never catch me having any cocktails or going out afterwards or anything. Else. Then we closed for not the hol holidays, and they decided to cut the show down, scene-wise, and then reopen it uh, so they could make more money. And that's when Hal came out then and watched the show. And I was a wreck the night he was watching the show, a wreck, because it was Hal Prince. Yeah. And um, uh, I wanted to be good because it seems that I was on the short list of, of Elaine Stritch like people, which I'm not, which I'm really not. But I was, you know, tall ish and blonde and big and all that stuff. So they thought I'd be a perfect substitute. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, Anita Gillette, that was the one who was a good Parthy. She, she then went on and did another road company of that. You know, little tiny and just kind of like a little gnat. But Tom Bosley also, he didn't want to be, he didn't want to be henpecked by Parthy. So he played it strong and everything. So I was really stuck. I, I couldn't play strong. I, I, uh, and Hal, I just said, Hal, help me. I said, what, what should I do? And he said, be more funny. I went, okay. <laughs> He said, he said, you are one of the most natural actresses. I mean, that was his way of saying, you're not doing enough. You're one of the most natural actresses, he said, but I would like you to be more funny. I said, tell me something to do. He said, oh, give him a poke in the ribs. And I went, yeah, ha, ha, good luck with that one. Tom, would, Tom wouldn't stand for that at all. But uh, so that's the only thing. I wrote him a note, a thank you note. And I said, if you ever need a natural actress, I'm yours. But, you know, that's it. He had seen me do grass harp and thought it was good, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, he put me on his short list for people to ask to do things. So that's nice to know. Yeah, so yeah. I want to ask you about Whispers on the Wind, which you did with Nancy Dussault and David Cryle. Yes, yes. Was it Nancy Dussault and who else? I believe David Cryer. Oh, David Cryer, yes, yes. And Pat Fox, uh, who then became a big voiceover artist for commercials. Big, 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 big. He had his own plane. Uh, 
that was wonderful because again, that was down at Joe Papps and Gordon, Gordon Hunt directed it. But anyway, I then came out to the coast when we finished and immediately got another pilot and was under contract to ABC. And so when they wanted to do the show off Broadway and do a recording of it, ABC wouldn't let me out of my contract. And the producer who was Bruce Paltrow, Bruce Paltrow called ABC and tried to get, and they went, nope, Karen's under contract. Of course, well, I never got a series, so I just sat there, but I was being paid. But I just sat there, the pilot didn't go. I mean, the pilot, the series didn't go. And so that was it. That was it. I didn't get a chance to record, although there is a recording. There is a recording of, of the original group, yeah. And uh, I don't, it's bootlegged, obviously, as is the, the I'm Solomon. No, not I'm Solomon. Um, Joyful Noise, that's a bootleg vinyl. And because we never recorded that. So a lot of things out there are not, were not recorded. Oh, the last sort of thing is White Christmas, which I want to ask you about. You did in Boston, I believe. Yes, I did. I did that. That was the last thing I've ever done on stage, uh, other than other than you know just singing by myself. Um, it was interesting going back. I hadn't been on Broadway in fourteen years, so to go back to that, and they said, you know, where do you want to do it? They're going to do it in Los Angeles. They're going to do it in Boston, and I said, I want to do Boston. And I didn't. I didn't. I'm terrified of critics, and I didn't want to. Although I've, I've got nice reviews here when I've done things. That was, a, oh, I had done that originally, hello, in St. Louis. And Leroy and I, and uh, Karen Mason, and um, Laura Teeter, we kind of wrote the script, the new script, taking the, the movie script and turning it into a stage thing. And that was great, oh my God, was that wonderful. The orchestrations were so fabulous and we laughed. Oh my God, did we laugh. The four of us came out in our, in our minstrel outfits or something, we, oh, 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 we couldn't stop laughing at ourselves. And and um, uh, Howard Keel was the star. I don't know, maybe Leroy told you this. And Howard Keel at the end at the end of the of the the show when all the guys are there, you know, all, uh, St. Louis, they had called is it any man, any <laughs> of a certain age, if you have a uniform, come and be in the show. So the last scene, of course, the stage at St. Louis was filled. With people in, in uniforms and so the, the, the captain comes out the general comes out now howard was having problems mem with memory so his wife would be in the wings you know to shout words for him and stuff like that and so he came out and at the end he's supposed to say oh you know be emotional and all this stuff about all these men showing up and then you go and, and merry christmas that's what he's supposed to say his last line is merry christmas and we're all on stage looking at him with our odd outfits and he comes out and he says Thank you, thank you, thank you, and happy birthday. Well, <laughs> Breath Leroy said to Jesus, well, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We just didn't know what to do because there we were screaming, screaming, inside screaming, screaming, screaming. And Howard, you know, then started the song and everything was just fine, but oh Lord, oh Lord. So, okay, that was the original. So much fun, so much fun, so much fun. Now we're gonna do it in Boston. They've rewritten it. They've rewritten it. And the words aren't coming out of my mouth the way they had originally. The ones as we, when we wrote it, they just, they decided to be more clever and more. 
and I really didn't enjoy doing it. It was not, it was, it wasn't coming out naturally. And I don't, I mean, I sang, but I don't think, I don't think I did a, a necessarily stellar job. I mean, other people have, have been doing it, you know, did it since. And then when they asked me if I would do it again here in LA and I said, absolutely not. Or do it in New York. Did they do it in New York? I yeah, don't think they, they do it in New York. Uh, well, I got asked to do it again and, and I just said, no, 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 no. And I was sick for the entire last week in Boston. I had really bad uh, uh, tracheitis and fever and flu and all of that. And so I missed the entire last week. Okay. And that embarrassed me beyond belief. Embarrassed me because it was work. I, I, I missed the Christmas weekend. I missed that whole Christmas week, New Year's. And I came home and I just said, okay, that's it. That was the end of my career. That was the end. People have asked me to do Broadway since, but, but I've said no, because that, that was just, that was too traumatic to be that sick and to miss. Because I've maybe missed one night or something on a show because of tracheitis. But no, I just said, uh, uh I can't, I can't in all honesty set my foot on a Broadway stage again and, you know, or a big thing. So that was it. Yeah, yeah. So the very last question I want to ask you is, I know that you've been doing a lot of teaching since then. So I want to ask you, what is a piece of advice you would give to someone starting out? Oh my gosh, someone starting out. Uh, first of all, take voice lessons <laughs> so that you know the technique. Go to a, go to a, a, a proper person, no technique. Know how about breathing and stuff like that. I mean, that just, that has to continue. Uh, listen to music, all kinds of music and find what you like best and know why you like that music. Do you like it because it's melodic? Do you like it because it's big and showy? Do you like it? And then listen to other kinds and listen to all kinds of music. Um, just know that, that you are unique and to be brave. That's my biggest thing with my, because my students now have aged as I've aged. My students now are, you know, in their 50s and 60s. And I said, you must pay attention to what you're saying, to what you're saying. The words, the words are so important. And I have tricks for how to, how to make the words outstanding. But the point is, is to be brave. If a teacher asks you to try something, do it, do it. And you will discover so many things. And know the history like you do, Charles. Know the history of your craft. Who were the people that came before you? Uh, I, I'm sick when young students don't know who Richard Rogers is and don't know Frank Lesser and people like that. They only know Pesek and Paul. Fine, but it's not there. Nah, I get so upset by that. I say, do your homework. I mean, I'm impressed with you. So, oh, so thank you. Thank so, you. So if you sang to me and you sang badly, I would still like you. <laughs> I'd hire you because it shows intelligence. So study, study, study and be brave and sing, just go sing everywhere. When the people ask you to sing, go do it. If it's in the living room, fine, go do it, go do it. And later on, you can be more discerning. So that's it. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, thank bless, you. Bless you, bless you. Okay, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Okay.
Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I'm joined by Broadway actress Brenda Braxton, a Tony nominee for Smokey Joe's Cafe. She also originated roles in such shows as Jelly's Last Jam, Legs Diamond, Dreamgirls, But Never Jam Today, and Reggae. She is also a longtime Velma Kelly in Chicago, and has replaced in Cats, Guys and Dolls, and more on Broadway. She served as production assistant on Lena Horne, The Lady and her music, and worked on Alice out of town as part of Vinette Carroll's Urban Arts Corps, which also led to When Hell Freezes Over, I'll Skate, on stage and on screen. Her other on-screen work includes the movie of The Wiz and a recurring role on The Good Fight. She also is an entrepreneur, having launched B. Braxton, Exceptional Grooming for Men, and Act Two, Now What?, a series of seminars for women over 50. She is also the author of a book of advice for young actors called The Little Black Book of Backstage Etiquette. I hope you enjoy that episode. Thanks for tuning in.